0: What would it take for you to become great? Well, success would be a good start. Being successful in a highly admired field or endeavor. And to get that success, to get there, You'll probably need a good bit of ambition, talent, money, and connections. And once you arrive there, you'll likely get fame, notoriety, and possibly power and authority. I remember as a boy dreaming of being a professional athlete. I loved competition. I also loved the glory and admiration athletes gained along the way. What greater symbol of greatness is there than thousands of fans wearing jerseys with your name and number? We observe the feats of Tom Brady and assign him the title of GOAT, the greatest of all time. This is the alluring promise of sport to those who would find success. I also admired the ambition of politics, the possibility of gaining a seat of influence, reforming laws, and in the end, maybe making some history. Maybe you could even reach the highest summit and have your face featured on currency, like old Abe Lincoln. Life has a way of humbling these aspirations. Decisions pile up, time goes on, and our possibilities narrow. Even so, this equation of greatness remains in our minds. It informs how we guide our children. It shapes our relationships and goals at work. It even influences how we view our church in our shared life together. In Matthew 18, Jesus sets about instructing His disciples concerning how they are to relate to each other, both now and in the years to come, as the church is formed. And He starts His instruction by addressing the question of what it means to be great according to the standards of the kingdom. We'll be looking today at Matthew 18, starting in verse 1. Looking at verses 1 through 5 in Matthew chapter 18. There, the disciple Matthew records At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. He said, truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. The starting point of this passage begins with a pretty clear question. Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? When we look to the other gospel accounts, Mark and Luke add a bit more color. And it shows that Matthew has done a little bit of condensing here in his record of events. And Mark, it's recorded that they came to Capernaum. And we already know from chapter 17 that they had arrived in Capernaum after being being at the Mount of Transfiguration. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. You look at Luke 9, verses 46 through 48. An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. So we see that this wasn't just purely like a question arising from some intellectual curiosity amongst the disciples, but it actually stemmed from an argument that they were having with each other. An argument that they had in the road. Now at this point, they're at Peter's house, and they're not arguing while they're in the house with Jesus, but apparently, Jesus knew their thoughts. He knew that this question was percolating in their minds. And uh, it would be embarrassed to bring him this, this question. But the fact that they actually had this question in mind indicates that Matthew's record of, how, of these events is basically accurate. This is a question that they had for Jesus even if they didn't particularly articulate it in that moment like that. But it was the question that they had on their minds because they'd been arguing about it all the way on the road till they were at Matthew's house. Now, why argue? Why would they argue about such a thing as who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Well, I think it's important for us to understand what's being implied when we're talking about the kingdom of heaven. And We really have to put ourselves in the shoes of those first century Jews. They're anticipating that the coming of God's kingdom was going to mean the Romans were about to be kicked out, that Jesus was going to ascend to a throne in Jerusalem, and that they would be part of Jesus' cabinet, or something like that. Um... So it wasn't just some far-off reality that they'd be kind of speculating about, like, oh, what would that be like one day? No, they thought, like, this is coming very, very soon, the fullness of God's kingdom. And as we know, just from our lived experience in this world, people do care quite a bit about rank and status in earthly kingdoms. Who's kind of the top dog, or... The president's right hand man, or something like that. We also have to consider, too, that this, isn't, this consideration isn't something that um, the disciples had kind of pulled out of thin air, but something that Jesus had commented about previously. When you go back to Matthew 11, and verse 11, Jesus says this about John the Baptist Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there's not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. So Jesus seems to indicate that greatness does matter in God's kingdom. The question in the disciples' mind is what is the measure of that greatness? Jesus' response must have absolutely blown their minds. Because what he does is he brings a little kid into the house, into the circle of these disciples, to use as an illustration and response. He says in verses 3 and 4, he says, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now there's something that we need to understand here that I, I think is often misunderstood which is that Jesus is using the kid as an illustration. He's not trying to say anything about children as such. He's not trying to say that kids have some kind of inherently special status in the kingdom of heaven. Because anyone who's a parent knows, children are not perfectly innocent. (laughs) They can be little troublemakers. They can be selfish. They... And these are the things that parents are made responsible to kind of work out in their kids so that they can grow up to be um, basically functional adults, even though we're imperfect and even raising them. The point that Jesus is trying to make here in, in, in bringing this kid into this situation is he's trying to say that you need to take on the societal rank of a child. You need to take on the lowly position of a child. Now this makes sense because even as we look at our society today, we understand that most kindergartners are not influencers in our society. A little kid like that, they have a lot of potential and we try to guard and protect them, but their opinion doesn't really matter a whole lot. If you go back then, it especially didn't really matter what they had to say or think. They had zero, zero power. Now most of us, I think, fear being overlooked in just that way. We have this innate fear of being irrelevant. And so we strive to be important. That you've got to pay attention to me. You've got to pay attention to what I say and what I'm doing. But Jesus says that this is not what it means to be great in the kingdom of heaven by taking up a position where people have to pay attention to what you're doing and saying. No, Jesus says, there's two things that we need to pay attention to when considering greatness in God's kingdom. The first is that greatness in the kingdom is defined by humility, embracing a low status. So greatness is defined by humility and the second thing that we need to pay attention to this is this. If you don't change and embrace this, you will never enter the kingdom. Now in saying all this, Jesus has really turned the definition of greatness in the minds of the disciple and even in our own minds completely upside down. Or right side up if you're looking at it from God's perspective. You see, being great in God's kingdom is not found by jostling for position. Instead, being great in God's kingdom looks like making yourself a servant. Now, in truth, what Jesus is saying here isn't really new when it comes to the words of Scripture. The Old Testament testifies that this has been God's valuation all along. And Isaiah 57, he indicates that God is with the lowly. It says, For this is what the high and exalted one says, he who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. In Psalms 149, verse 4, it says that, For the Lord takes delight in His people. He crowns the prideful. No, not the prideful. He crowns the humble with victory. When we go to the words of wisdom in Proverbs, Proverbs 16:19 it says, Better to be lowly in spirit, along with the oppressed, than to share plunder with the proud. So we have all these words from the Old Testament indicating that God is with the humble, those who are lowly. And then we get into the New Testament, and we see that Jesus has already been saying this in His ministry. And you remember back in the Beatitudes, in chapter 5 of Matthew, He says in verse 5 of that chapter, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And then we go back to chapter 11 of, of Matthew. We've already mentioned this verse, where Jesus says, Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there is not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. But then there's this line that immediately follows, wherein He says, Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So in truth, the disciples should already know this, if they have been paying attention. But we already know that the disciples have some difficulty paying attention and really absorbing and understanding what Jesus is saying. And there's other places in the gospel where Jesus indicates this as well. You go to the gospel of Luke, chapter 18, and we have the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector as they've come to, come to the temple, and the Pharisees praying, I'm glad I'm not like this filthy tax collector and that I'm a holy man, oh God. And the tax collector is there and he's just completely humbled. He's on his knees and saying, God, I know I'm a sinner. I'm not worthy of your presence. And the point that Jesus is making here is that the tax collector is the one that God is favoring here, not the proud proud, uh, pharisaical uh, religious figure. Luke 18.14, he says, I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, went home justified before God, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So this is what Jesus has been teaching. But it's not just what he's been teaching, it's in fact what he's been living. He's been living out this value of those who are greatest in the kingdom are those who make themselves the least. And we see this clearly when we understand who Jesus is. When we understand that He is the Son of God, it's astounding how He humbled Himself to leave heaven, to come to earth, and not to be like some Roman governor or some recognized Judean king or something. He was born in a stable, in a small town, worked as a carpenter. In the eyes of the world, he was not great at all. And Paul directs us to this example that Jesus has set in his letter to the Philippians, in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. He says, in your relationships with one another. So you're thinking about the relationships between the disciples. Have they been arguing about who's greater than the other person? Blah, 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 blah. Paul says here in Philippians, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. No one has matched the humility of Jesus Christ to come from that heavenly position to become a man. And to not be saying, hey, like, you all should be bowing to me right now and give me that crown. No, he, he humbled himself. He sat and ate with sinners. And what's more, he humbled himself... See even the point of death, of being crucified, and yet by the time we get to the end of those verses, what has happened to Jesus? He has been humbled, but then he is exalted. His greatness is recognized by the Father, so that he's put it in this position where every knee has to bow and re- bend and recognize the authority of Jesus Christ. This is the pattern that Jesus has set for us. James, the brother of Jesus, gets this. In his his letter, James 4, in in verse 10, he says, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. We We shouldn't be concerned about lifting ourselves up. Jesus wasn't concerned with lifting himself up. Rather, following after the example of Christ, we are content with being humble. With taking up the position of a servant. Because we know that it is God who will lift us up. Not in this age, but in the age to come. And that's what really matters. First 1 Peter, so you have the disciple Peter. He's gotten this message. He understands it. And he passes this on to those who he's teaching. In 1 Peter 5, verses 1-6, through 6, he says, In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that He may lift you up in due time. In due time. Not today, maybe not tomorrow, but in due time. Our faith and trust is in God's kingdom and in His timing so that we will die unknown, and that will be all the better because we know that when Christ returns and we are raised from the dead, we will step into the glory of Jesus Christ as we all join together in celebrating what God has done through Christ and His body. Imagine. Imagine if we responded with obedience to this example. If we obeyed this call of exchanging our selfish, self-glorifying ambitions and exchanged them for God-glorifying ambitions. Imagine if we dropped the self-promotion and left our status in God's hands. Imagine how that might transform your workplace if you became such a person in your workplace where you weren't concerned about making much of yourself, about climbing the ladder. Imagine how it might transform your family relationships if you dropped concerns about status and who got their way versus who got and who didn't. Now, of course, in, in ourselves, we don't have the power to change our families or even our workplaces, but you can manifest the presence of the kingdom, the way of Jesus Christ. And this becomes salt and light in the places in which we ha- inhabit. It brings healing. It brings new life. It'll have an impact. But before we can think about others changing, you and I need to think about how we'll change. Remember what Jesus says in verse 3, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's some pretty high stakes there. That if we don't change, we won't enter kingdom of heaven. So how can we change? Almost sounds like we have to go to like, some kind of reform school or something. But I want to point out to you a certain similarity here between what Jesus is saying here and what Jesus has to tell Nicodemus in John 3. In John 3, and I've selected several verses from there, Nicodemus has been asking Jesus, how can one enter the kingdom of heaven? Jesus says in verse 3, 5, and 16, He says, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And then Jesus answered when Nicodemus is like, well, how does that work? He says, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. And then you get to that Most famous verse in 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Now it's funny, when you go to the context of that chapter, Nicodemus hadn't been asking about this question, actually. And then Jesus kind of turned the corner on him, though, because he knew this was the real concern at Nicodemus' heart. And he says, the only way that you'll get into the kingdom of heaven is if you're born again. And to be born again means that you believe in Jesus Christ and you've placed your faith in Him. And that's where the change begins. We need to change so bad that no school will do. We need to be born again. And this only occurs as we put our faith in Christ. Now later in the Gospel of John, Jesus helps make it all the more clear that, that He is the source of this change. This is one of my favorite passages in Scripture, in John 15, verses 5-6. through six. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in Me, and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from Me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in Me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. You see, we can't become like little children unless we are joined to Jesus. When we are joined to Him, we begin to share in His humility. And this is how Jesus can go on to say in verse 5 that whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Again, the point here that Jesus is making is he's not talking about literal children. Jesus says, what Jesus is saying here is, is that his disciples are these little children. And that whoever welcomes his disciples who have inhabited this low status as little children, that when you welcome those disciples, you are in fact welcoming Jesus Christ. So that indicates that we have to be joined to Christ before we can even be considered to be those little children. So that when we are welcomed, people are actually inviting the actual person of Christ. Now, Jesus is, again, Jesus, this is something that Jesus has already told us. He's already told his disciples. In Matthew 10, verses 40 through 42, when he's sending his disciples out to preach the gospel, he says, Anyone who welcomes you welcomes me, and anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Whoever welcomes a prophet as a prophet will receive a prophet's reward, and whoever welcomes a righteous person as a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup, of cold water to one of these little ones, who is my disciple, truly, I tell you, that person will certainly not lose their reward. Now, nothing that Jesus says here comes naturally to us. It's very much a process of denying ourselves and carrying the cross the call that He has placed on all His disciples. It's only even possible because we are joined to Him. He is the head and we are made members of His body. And in turn, we are inhabited by the Holy Spirit, which renders out these changes in our lives. The clear point that Jesus is making here is that our measurements of greatness are all out of whack. Notice, he does not condemn the pursuit of greatness. He doesn't say, don't don't try to be great. No, what he does is he he redefines what greatness looks like. He wants to completely alter our vision of greatness. Instead of striving to be noticed and applauded, the greatest people in God's kingdom work behind the scenes. They don't say, look at me. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't accept being honored or recognized. I think it's important for us as a church family to recognize those who offer humble service. But that's not the reason why those who serve do what they do. Their ambition is to honor God, to build up the church, to advance the gospel. So likewise, Jesus' definition of greatness isn't at odds with pursuing excellence. Now sometimes excellence will get you noticed by others. But for the Christian, that isn't the point. We pursue excellence to glorify God not to re, not to gain recognition, fame, power, and status. Just as often, excellence will be overlooked. We will be underappreciated. But as disciples of Jesus, this shouldn't bring us down. Because we aspire to the status of a little child. Overlooked by all, but beloved by the Father. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you that your measures of greatness are not the measures of this world. Because, Father, we understand that in the eyes of the world, so very few of us, would be accounted as great. Thank You, Father, that You measure greatness by the measure of Your Son, who so humbled Himself for our salvation, but who is now exalted, and who sits at Your right hand, and who receives all glory, honor, and power. Father, help us to follow in His footsteps. Help us to be like little children, accepting a lowly position, making ourselves servants, Father. Because our concern is not with the rank and status of this world, Father, but with the glory of Your kingdom. And we know, Father, that the glory of Your kingdom begins not with us Pointing at ourselves, but pointing at you and what you've done in Jesus Christ. Help us to live this out, Father, as much as it's difficult, Father. May the Holy Spirit sanctify us and make this change possible, all because we are joined to Jesus Christ. We ask this in the name of our Lord and Savior. Amen. The Lord bless you as you go. Hey there, Pastor Tom here. I hope you enjoyed this sermon I offered to Rockland Community Church. Rockland Community Church is located at 212 Rockland Road in North Situate, Rhode Island, just around the bend from Scituate Public High School. We invite you to join us in person or virtually this Sunday as we continue our series through the Gospel of Matthew. It's our joy to welcome you into our community.